Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Thank you for joining us for episode 88 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. You are joining us for a long overdue topic that I get asked about all the time, <laughs> pretty much every time I'm posting an Instagram story. It is about nourishing your toddler. And of course, for those of you that do watch my Instagram stories and all things that I put out in the social media universe, you may know that it was Stella's birthday over this past weekend. And so I will be sharing her diet progression specifically, some of the main highlights of nourishing your toddler, and then definitely we'll be sharing a little bit more about her celebration and the menu that we use this weekend. Yes, I'm so excited to get into this episode. We've been planning it for a very long time. <laughs> and I know where we stand on things such as grains and dairy and purees and sugars for kiddos, but there's a lot involved that I, you know, as a, a non-mom, <laughs> I don't think about, or I guess I don't have any experience around. And we often don't slow down enough so that I can pick your brain. So <laughs> totally another reason I love doing these episodes. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know, I think that we would keep bumping the, the it was first baby led weaning as I was, as Stella was actually weaning. And here we are like a year later. And um, I'm excited that we, we fit it in. We're going to do the thing. Uh, so a lot to cover today and feel free to pick away, Becky. I will be going into supplements, baby led weaning paleo and keto for toddlers and children, and so much more, all the things. Awesome. So excited because Stella is one of my favorite little people in the world. <laughs> we try to do good things. Yes. yes. Um, so let's start with talking about introduction of food to baby beyond breast milk. So I know we did episode 55 on breastfeeding, so go back and listen if that's of interest to you. And we talked a lot about the benefits of breastfeeding, how to support production, and you recommend breastfeeding at least for eight to 12 months. So where do foods fit in? When do you start them? And how do you recommend starting? Yeah, so I'll kind of answer classically. And then I think it's really important that we cover some of the pitfalls of feeding foods beyond breast milk. So yes. being purees or solids too early. Uh, Cause I think that that's a, a definite concern, but the big things we look for are signs of readiness or desire. Of course, uh, I can't tell you how many times it like breaks my heart if I'm in an airport or I'm, you know, grabbing, I don't know, eating out or uh, grabbing a coffee or something. And I see that mom, like for like looking at her phone, scrolling and like force feeding the, the spoon into the baby's mouth and the baby's just like, ah, head mm -hmm. <laughs> bobbing back. Um, so definitely signs of readiness and desire are equally important. So signs of readiness, which are kind of the classics that we think of with pediatric uh, associations and, and most dietitian recommendations are that the baby can sit up well without support, 
the baby has lost their tongue thrust reflex, so they don't automatically push that tongue out, which I'm sure you've seen little babies do pretty much up until about four months or so. They'll be doing that tongue thrust where they just organically push things out, which is a good thing because their body's not ready. Um, so once they lose that reflex, once they're ready and willing to chew, um, as they're developing what's called the pincer grip is another thing. So it's their uh, index and thumb when they're able to pinch things between that thumb and forefinger or index, uh, like picking up small items. Um, and usually prior to that, they do something called the palmer grasp, where they're basically using all fingers pushing into the palm of the hand. Now, within baby led weaning and, and the start of uh, feeding the baby, they might be doing a combination, but they should be starting to develop that pincer grasp. And so we'll talk about with the types of sizes of foods that you provide, how you can continue to expand and develop that because it definitely plays a role with cognitive development as well. Um, so doing that kind of pinching pincer grasp is another sign of readiness. And then the fact that they're actually eager to participate in mealtime. So they might be grabbing for your food and trying to put it in their mouth. Um, they could be grabbing as you're unloading groceries and not, you know, putting their mouth on a big carrot or something like that. Um, so actually engaging and trying to put food in their mouth and seeming very alert and aware during mealtime and wanting to be a part of a participant of that mealtime. And um, I am a huge proponent of baby led weaning because it does, for those people that don't know, it skips purees um, or it absolutely skips purees only. We can kind of talk about that as well. Um, but it skips purees only phase and allows the baby to self-feed and self-regulate using whole foods. And that can make the process less stressful on the parent often as far as feeling like you're force feeding and allowing the child to come at food when they are ready. Stella did baby led weaning exclusively. Um, we did bring in smoothies around month 13 or maybe 12, um, somewhere around there. And um, it was for a great way to package in a punch of uh, nutrient density that she just wasn't getting with her solids. Uh, but beyond that, she did exclusive solids. And um, it was really interesting that when we started at six or six and a half months, up until eight and a half months, I don't think she got more than 50 calories <laughs> from solids because it was a lot of play, a lot of touching, a lot of trying to ooh, miss the mouth, hit the cheek, you know, type thing as far as connection. And um, I think that that's a really integral process to developing digestion and developing the body to be ready to, you know, accept foods. Sure. So you know, many pediatricians are still recommending about four to six months where you start purees. So let's talk about the concerns here in terms of, you mentioned starting foods a little bit too early. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the four month mark generally is. Um, I think that there's something in a parent's mindset that you feel excited, like you got a stamp of approval from the pediatrician, like, oh, my child's advanced. <laughs> you know, like, oh, look at me. There, he or she is ready at four months. And then there's also an element that occurs of, um, oh, well, maybe I don't have to breastfeed so much. Maybe I start to get my own body back or, you know, I don't have to be the primary provider, or the you know, milk machine type thing, I think as well, truly so um, socially and emotionally that occurs in mom. Um, but the issue is, 
that, you know, the gut mucosal lining is not truly formed until age two. Um, and so when we're talking about leaky gut, when we're talking about asthma and eczema, and we're talking about dermatological conditions and immunological conditions, it's really important that we're mindful of what foods are introduced all the way up through that second birthday, um, which is why we have not done any grains with Stella. And um, it's also really important that we think of the immunological elements of breastfeeding exclusive and how that plays a big role with supporting that gut lining. So there has been studies done, uh, there was a 2001 literature review on exclusive breastfeeding up to the six month mark. And they found that infants had a greater immunological protection. They had uh, less pathogens in their body because remember in breast milk, there's those HMOs, those human milk oligosaccharides, particular types of fermentable sugars or prebiotics that feed good bacteria. And then breast milk, of course, also has a really great source of probacteria. Um, and then not to name the other brain boosting and other nutritional components in there. So exclusive breastfeeding, meaning not complementary with solids for six months is a really strong recommendation that I also adhere to, regardless of readiness from the child. Um, and then uh, we do see that that can also help to support and optimize growth and development. So the concern is, you know, gut lining, reduced probiotic intake if you reduce milk, and reducing the gut support uh, for preventing against pathogens or immunological reaction that's unfavorable. Got it. So setting them up for things like food sensitivities, et cetera, as well. Exactly. And then, you and know, even food, food allergies. Right, absolutely. And, you know, then beyond that, we're, when we're talking about digestive influence, I kind of alluded to, so, you know, the enzyme production starts with stimulation with even thinking about food. <laughs> so the baby's not thinking, it's like, ah, what's this? Um, so, you know, smelling, looking, experiencing, being engaged actually starts digestive enzymes, as we know, uh, with the whole Pavlov's dog research. And we know that also enzyme production is stimulated by saliva, so gumming at things and chewing things and having a slow and steady introduction versus being somewhat force-fed by a spoon um, can definitely support digestive function. So immunological is my first concern. The second is digestive concern. So if we allow the baby to pace themselves and they're gumming and they're using that pincer grip and they're eating slow and steady, they're going to have a lot more digestive enzyme secretion and activation, which means that the food particles are going to be broken down. So there's less large antigens hitting the gut. Now you might argue, well, a puree is totally broken down. This is true, a puree is broken down, but a puree will not get as much enzyme activity. And enzymes are what really help on a molecular level to break things down beyond what we can visibly see. And they also help to ensure nutrient absorption and utilization. So that part you don't get. You might not get the GI distress of a large food particle from a puree, but you're not going to get the nutrient activation and absorption like you would with the whole foods. So that's a thing really to consider. Sure. And let's talk about, I remember you doing the, um, before Stella really started with solids, the fruit net. And I remember yeah. you saying it had something to do with enzyme production. So let's go there and, and talk about yeah. kind of the process. Thank you. Cause I don't think I had that in my notes at all. So yeah, it's actually a Montessori. Um, so I did a lot of research 
when I was, uh, of course, because I like nerd out, she's my child, I want everything to be perfect. <laughs> and um, So I was nerding out about baby led weaning and pros and cons. And um, I also, she was dealing with a lot of teeth. Um, she started cutting teeth at uh, about um, five months. And so at that time, she was having really swollen gums. So we were doing like, uh, we would make really cold metal spoons that she was able to gum on, um, which seems really harsh, but uh, works really well for pressure. And then um, we started to use frozen fruit pieces. Um, and so we kept it to, uh, I believe it was just mango. I'm trying to think if we did peaches. If we did, those were the only two. And partially because of the tropical enzyme composition of mango was a big reason. Um, and then the other thing was also, we just didn't want a lot of dark colored things staining everything. Um, so we were like one color spectrum, um, and also just not introducing a whole gamut of different antigens. So, you know, we were just keeping it to two. So I think it was at five or five and a half months actually that we did allow her to start doing that. Um, and so we were using the fruit nets and then eventually the fruit silicone holders and she would really just kind of gum and gnaw at those. We didn't use any other teethers per se because I wasn't excited about the materials used. Um, we did use a couple of wooden, non-dyed, non-toxic teethers, but she wasn't into them. She would just kind of look at them and toss them on the floor. So the fruit nets were a really great way for her to both use, get that analgesic property of that numbing. So she was getting pain relief from the cold. Um, and then she also was getting sensation and taste. And um, we were also doing a lot of things with scents, um, sensory, when she'd be in her swing, we'd have her smelling things, um, like slice of a lemon and such. And that also helps to start to activate the digestive enzymes. But fruit, be that they were frozen and not cooked. They do have raw enzymes within them. So we're starting to reduce, excuse me, introduce some of those tropical enzymes of the mango. Also the sensory, the pain um, alleviation. And we did that for about six weeks before we started with the first food, which was avocado. Yes. I think that is just so cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it worked quite well. She's yet to have any reactions and any skin conditions and any, um, doctor's visits or anything. So I think, yeah. I think we're doing good. Um, and, and the other thing on digestion before moving on, I want to note is um, that the child, if you do choose to introduce multiple foods right away, you know, we generally recommend no more than three in the beginning, three foods of choice in the beginning. Um, they're able to select those that they process easier because they're actually able to select with intuition and feedback from their body, you know? So like you're not making a spinach, um, avocado sweet potato puree, you're giving those three foods and they're able to select what feels right. Um, and at that level, they're not getting food jags. They're not going to be deciding like, eh, I don't want a vegetable. They're literally going to be able to select what feels right in their body. Um, and so it's really something powerful to consider when we're talking about optimized digestion and how their immunological system might react to different food compounds. And then we do get the reduction of antigens and inflammatory compounds when we're practicing more of a paleo approach to baby lead weaning, especially when we're keeping out things like gluten and dairy. Um, as we know, gliadin increases zonulin. 
So even if the child does not show a reaction to wheat, whether it's in the form of white flour um, or whole wheat flour or in a byproduct or you know, a, a bar, a pancake, a, you name it, um, a bread product, uh, that definitely is going to reduce the tight junctions of the gut and drive larger antigen stream into the bloodstream, which is going to cause more inflammation in the body. So there's that kind of across the board. Sure. And I think it's worth noting, you know, what's recommended as first foods. It's like rice cereal and those little yeah. puffs and things like that. And oatmeal. Yeah. 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 Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, um, you mentioned the signs of hunger or signs of readiness and yeah. kind of the baby's ability to self-regulate. Yes. So hunger is going to be often not always crying, <laughs> but sometimes crying. But opening the mouth, um, like bobbing for breast, like grabbing for your breast, typically the baby's hungry. Again, grabbing for food on your plate and such, um, but definitely open mouth. And um, you might want to be mindful of timing of when the last time babe was was fed, but also with growth spurts, sometimes it can seem a little bit unpredictable. And then just as important, it's, it's it really just as important to honor the signs of fullness, which is often like pursing lips, which you often see the babies being spoon fed with that pursed lips mm -hmm. or turning their head away, um, spitting out the food, um, blocking with their hands. All of those can be signs of fullness and that's their way of responding that, that this is not something that they're desiring. Um, so you can be, I don't want to harp too hard, you can be a mindful spoon feeder with your baby. You just need to really be in intuitive to the baby's cues. But with self-feeding, the baby is really able to do this in the best, most organic way. Um, and, and, you know, there's so much I think we can dig into here. And I will likely do an interview episode on baby led weaning alone, <laughs> as far as, you know, what foods to introduce, specifics of textures. But I really want to today focus on some of the constructs of nourishing your toddler as a broad topic so we can, you know, cover more ground. And I know a lot of people want to know Stella's supplement regimen and all of that jazz. So, yes. And I will hold you to that, Allie, because I think okay. it'll benefit so many and me eventually. Someday. Yes. <laughs> So, get it before you're pregnant or maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just beyond you know strategy of this approach using solids and that's um, focused on the baby leading the process let's talk about the foundations of a nourishing diet for a baby and for a toddler so what are the primary concerns you would say from year one all the way up let's say to year three and what should be our priorities so I would break it down as simplistically as growth and development. And then the second priority or equal priority would be immune support. So I think those two are the two things that we want to kind of tunnel vision and hone in on and really ensure are optimized for best viability and resilience and, um, you know, best outcomes into growth and development. So the first things that we look at with growth and development are going to be protein. Um, and so, like I said, Stella's first food at six months, six and a half, I think it really was, was avocado. And then about five point a half month later, we brought in sweet potato. Um, when we first brought in avocado again, um, like I said, I don't think she really got any in her mouth until like month seven. And that's why I was like, well, maybe we should bring in a second food. And I was really anxious about bringing in much because again, the idea of her gut barrier not being truly tightened and closed. I was really adamant about that tight six months of breastfeeding. And then I decided, you know, 
limited foods until she was really self-feeding. But I wanted to at that almost seven months, six and a half, seven month mark, bring in sweet potato to just make sure maybe she just doesn't like avocado or maybe it's too soft. So we did do a soft steam of, of the sweet potato and then we cubed it and roasted it and in coconut oil. So she also was still getting healthy fats. I didn't want her getting a lot of high carbs sure. without the fats to support her blood sugar regulation and so forth. Um, so we did that pretty much through eight months as her sole nourishment. And like I said, she really didn't start eating until eight and a half months of actually getting that in the mouth. And then we started on with the proteins. So she was pretty much full fledged exclusive breastfed with just complimentary food play, I would call it up until eight months. Um, and so the protein guidelines for um, six months and into a year and a half to two years, actually, I think this is a toddler guideline, is 15 to 20 grams of protein per day, which is really two to three ounces of protein a day. Um, and Stella gets at least four to six ounces a day. Um, so in grams, instead of 15 to 20, she's getting 28 to 42. Um, and I'm sorry, I do apologize. That is the toddler recommendation. I didn't look up six months, but the toddler recommendation is 15 to 20 grams a day. So Stella's getting at least double that. Yep. <laughs> um, and her introduction started with wild salmon at, at like eight and a half or nine months. And then we brought in grass-fed beef um, ground into like burger patty, essentially. Um, so she was able to pick up chunks of the burger. Um, my big priority for both salmon first and then the grass-fed beef, of course, the omega-3s with the salmon and also getting a pretty good source of iron. And then the grass-fed beef for iron and zinc as well. Um, and we did go for fattier cuts. So she was doing like an um, 80-20 or an 85-15 grass-fed ground beef blend. And um, also, it's really great to consider that with your ground beef patties, you can incorporate organs a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, your child can really get more open to what some people call gamey or metallic flavors, but that is where we get a lot of that mineral density. So um, we started that at month nine, and then I did wait until steak. I was, I was a little squeamish because I still have a video at six and a half or whatever months with the avocado, and Brady's like, she's choking, dude, she's choking. Um, oh <laughs> and she had like a piece of avocado, and she's like, and it's very, I mean, that's their body being like, what is this? Why is this thing coming down my throat? Um, and babies do that where they gag on either baby led weaning or spoon feeding in the beginning. Um, it's a process, um, but I think it kind of, you know, whatever, it's your baby and you can do things logically as a practitioner and then you can do things as a mom differently. Um, and so we waited on actual steak beef until like 15 months. Um, Cause also Brady, my husband has choked on steak twice and he has a smaller, yeah, he, he's had to have actually a surgical Gosh. removal. Yeah. Ar around his epiglottis or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, so we waited until 15 to 16 months to do steak, but you can typically do that a lot earlier. We did allow her to like gnaw on bones and such if we were eating meat, but pretty much burger, ground meat. Um, and that's still her favorite food today. Um, yes. <laughs> and then, and salmon, I think back and forth, honestly. Um, and then um, chicken thighs we brought in at month 10. Um, we did bring in bacon and carnitas, so nitrite-free pork belly. Uh, and then, um, you know, bacon that was our family household approved. And then carnitas, so like shredded. So that was a bit more of a meat texture per se around month 11 or so. She brought in eggs at month 10, starting with just the yolks only at the first month. And then we incorporated the whites as like a full-on scramble at about 11 and a half months, almost a year mark. So, you know, all this was done with strategy, like chicken thighs instead of chicken breast. I don't think she had chicken breast until she was probably a year and a half. 
Um, and this is all so that we're getting more glycine. So that's going to be supportive of connective tissue. It has a less inflammatory ratio than the methionine that's in your white meats. So we're getting um, also with glycine a lot more support for anxiety and mood stability and relaxation and neurotransmitter function. And then as I, I, I mentioned prior, the zinc, the iron, the chromium, mineral density of these protein foods. And then with the egg yolks, choline, with the liver choline, and, and then B12 in all these protein foods for neurological development. So getting ample protein and channeling savory in your child is so important because as you alluded to, Becky, so many of those starter foods instead are empty carbs like rice cereals and those teething puffs and just fillers. Um, if I see another darn cheddar bunny on the playground, I'm going to shake my head. Um, <laughs> you know, all these fillers that just don't have, they're just really void of nutritional density. So she would eat in the beginning about a two ounce portion of these proteins. Um, now she can... It, I mean, it's wild. We'll let her again self-regulate, and um, she will at, at times when we're out at, at having a grass-fed burger. I've seen her kill almost a six-ounce patty, you know, and it's about four and a half that she gets through. Um, and then we got to like, all right, girlfriend, I think you're good. Um, let's get some more of that <laughs> avocado up over there. Um, but she was doing about a two-ounce portion of these proteins with avocado um, and or sweet potatoes roasted in coconut oil, and then we started bringing in other vegetables throughout that process at about that nine, ten-month mark as well. Awesome. So that's just the protein portion. Let's talk a little bit about healthy fats. Um, yes. I think this gets, again, glossed over when we're getting into the puffs and the cheddar bunnies and the goldfish and the whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, broad strokes in what our country is concerned about with child feeding and development. There's so much out there about obesity. Watch out for obesity, you know, and when you're eating whole real foods, your child will self-regulate and it's really not a concern. But when you eat empty calories and they don't get that regulation feedback, that's absolutely concerning, especially if you're doing sugary beverages, you know, the whole nine of, of the standard American diet. Um, so fats are extremely important, of course, for brain development. We know that the composition of breast milk is fat dominant. Um, we know that as we've talked in that episode as well, episode 55, that babies are often even naturally into, into ketosis um, and they can actually use ketones as fuel along with glucose. And so fats are that you know, high octane for the brain. The pediatric recommendation is 33 to 45 grams per day. And I did a little recall on Stella and she's getting about 60, upwards of 65 some days. Um, and so she started with coconut oil actually prior, I should say, because I was using coconut oil on my breasts regularly to help to prevent mastitis and to help with cracking or anything. So she was introduced to coconut oil pretty much like at two weeks. Um, not that we were feeding it to her on our fingers, but just passively through breastfeeding and it just being slathered all over my body. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, she was introduced to coconut oil and then she got it around the eight month marker, um, a tablespoon of coconut oil every day that we would either break up into teaspoons. Um, we would freeze coconut oil balls and she'd eat those um, or she would just kind of suck on it on a spoon. We'd put a, a, a tablespoon of coconut oil in the fridge to let it solidify and she just kind of gum in and gnaw on it um, and we were using it in our cooking so that's all kind of inclusive like I said we were using that a lot with our um, our sweet potatoes and then we were using avocado oil as our other fat and then we brought in olive oil eventually down the road as well um, avocado was her first food so we did find that she's always been a good sleeper but I would give her a quarter of an avocado 
prior to the evening breastfeed. And we call that the, the KO, the knockout in our household. <laughs> and <laughs> that's where we that. get 12 hours again. It was like, we were starting to lose back down to eight hours. We were like, oh no. Um, so once she was consistently getting into the mouth, that quarter avocado, and then we would do bath and then we'd do an evening breastfeed session. It was, it was done deal 12 plus hours a night. Um, so I think that that's extremely important to provide fats also for satiety and sleep. And so if mamas are worried about food freedom, um, that's where fats can really reign supreme. And I think in purees, it can be a little bit more difficult to get fats because they separate. Um, so if you are doing purees, you'd want to make sure you're always adding them on top or incorporating them into your mixtures. We did grass-fed butter at 15 months because I did hold off uh, dairy throughout the first year and onward. And we'll get a little bit into that um, later, but we did grass-fed butter. And now if you guys do watch my Instagram, she's constantly, anytime she sees Carrie Gold saying, more butter, please. Yes. Butter, mama. <laughs> so she loves her grass-fed butter, which is so nourishing. Great source of, you know, A, E, K, D, um, good source of conjugated linoleic acids, um, really immunologically supportive and cognitively supportive. So I love, I'm more than happy to give her a slice of butter out of the fridge. And then, you know, the only type of like uh, grain-like products, because she still has yet to have a grain, has been nut flours and nut butters. So nut butters, you do need to be mindful in the early stages, like up until really a year plus, because it can be a choking hazard because it, you know, it can actually um, just the the nature of it to your mouth. Yeah. 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 Um, and so we would freeze almond butter into balls, and that worked really well. Pretty small balls, like about half teaspoon um, to start, and that was her first, you know, use of nut butter. Um, and anytime she would have a snack with fruit, like if we'd give her blueberries or strawberries, which we started to do around the uh, nine and a half month mark as well, um, we would always ensure that we would do no naked carbs. We'd pair either of those frozen coconut oil balls or the uh, nut butter balls or avocado pieces with any time she had fruit. Um, and so she's always getting intentional fat um, and then ensuring anything that we cooked with was, of course, a qualitative fat source as well. Awesome. And then let's talk about, I know you supplemented with um, DHA as a baby. Let's talk about um, fish oil supplementation real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I have five we'll talk about today. This will be the first one. And I use the DHA baby. We'll definitely put links in our show notes to everything. Um, and so I use the DHA baby by Nordic Naturals. It's the best profile I have found on the market and cleanest as far as potency, purity, they're third party assessed for things like mercury and PCBs um, and also for the potency of what you are getting. Um, so many, like, you know, you'll look at like a, a cow's milk container and I know a lot of people buy this for their toddlers and it's like with DHA for brain health and it has like 10 to 30 milligrams. Mm. Um, well, I give Stella a dosage of 300 milligrams. Um, so a little bit different there. Um, so she gets 300 milligrams of DHA and 200 milligrams of EPA. It's a pretty hefty dosage for a two-year-old, um, but I'm swearing by it as a huge piece of why she's talking in sentences already and can count to 20 and all these things. Um, so we give her three to five milliliters of the DHA baby. She started with one milliliter. Uh, I want to say I was trying to figure out with Brady last night. I think around around six and a half or seven months is when we started giving her that. So that was another antigen. Um, or maybe it was eight months when we started giving her salmon. I'm not exactly sure, but it was around the half year mark. Um, and uh, we started with one ml, of course, and uh, started working our way up. So sometimes she'll do the full five if she hasn't had salmon in a couple of days, but she eats salmon pretty much 
three times a week. Um, and you know, it's really important to provide that DHA and EPA for inflammatory processes, and DHA is the big one we think of as far as brain function and cognitive development. Awesome. And then let's talk a little bit about um, how low carb you're going with Stella. So we talked about the protein, we talked about the fats. And Which I'm are, maxing out, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> like well over the recommended. Um, but in terms of carbs, what's your thought on low carb or even keto for kiddos? Okay. So get this. The recommendations for a one-year-old are 130 grams of carbs a day. Uh, <laughs> that's out of control talk about brain fog and blood sugar spikes and drops and then we talk about things like terrible twos and behavior oh, and behavior i was gonna say yeah. seriously concentrate and every child is add ah yeah i mean that's like the first place we start at the naturally nurse clinic when we're dealing with a child that's that has add um, or behavioral issues or growth and development issues is getting their carbs down, getting their fats up, getting their protein up, you know, so it's just like a classic approach. So why not introduce them into that distribution of eating? I am, as you guys know, super into carb control and carb balance. Um, so I recommend all children to be at least on a low glycemic diet and never having naked carbs. I did a, uh, like, three-day food record on Stella as a recall, just to kind of see, because I, you know, at this point, I'm kind of more intuitive with things, and I don't believe she's ever in the history of her life gone above 75 grams of carbs. Um, typically, she's under 60 um, on a typical day, and so, you know, the big things that you do to stay within carb control is, like I said, no naked carbs would mean anytime the child, like I said, with the fruit has a carbohydrate, they should have a protein or a healthy fat to pair with it. Um, so we don't want to give just a container of strawberries without, if they're doing dairy at the time, a string cheese stick, right? Or without, again, the sliced avocado or the frozen coconut oil or the nut balls or what have you. Um, it's a really great way to blunt that glycemic impact and also to get them satiated without having to just pound empty carbs. And then again, choosing whole food carbs exclusively and none of the processed products. So if we're doing whole fruits, if we're doing starchy vegetables, those are the two carbs that I feel children should be introduced to. And I don't feel that they need anything beyond that. Um, we really like to avoid liquid carbs. And really the exception to that would be a balanced smoothie to help to get more nourishing, dense foods into your child, um, especially approaching some of those jags or limited areas of nutrition. And I'd recommend, again, waiting past a year to do so with smoothies. Um, but really no liquid except water and bone broth. Um, should be used for even a toddler. And um, we're just starting to play with Stella right now on the turmeric lemonade. Um, oh. Like at, at restaurants, we're giving her lemon to suck on. It's pretty funny. I need to film it. Um, she's like, ooh, sour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she makes a really funny face. Um, I'm sure you've seen like babies. We didn't do that when she was a baby, when babies make really funny sour faces. Um, but anyway, we're working on turmeric lemonade, the version without sweetener, just again, to kind of support her body and support her detox enzymes. But um, she's a, a water and a bone broth person. Um, so I think that's really important as well. And um, so I, I am a big proponent of low glycemic, no grains, and you know, not even like gluten-free versions of foods as staples, nut flour bases being okay. So if we're talking about like snacky, crunchy carbs, um, the best options out there um, as far as like a brand is like Simple Mills. Um, they're like crackers um, are going to yeah. be almond flour based. So it's going to be a completely different composition. 
um, you're actually going to get protein and healthy fats. Uh, they're actually dominant in fats um, as far as when you look at their um, composition, especially if you pair them. Um, and then they're also going to be uh, another great choice, which is carb-free, is like chicharrones or pork skins, which work really well as a salty, crunchy option. Um, or if they're doing uh, cheese, it's, if they're doing dairy or cheese, then you can do like whisks and things like that at that stage. Sure. I remember Stella with the pork rinds pretty early on, uh -huh. just kind of as a, a teething, teething, something yeah. to keep her busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So if they need something to kind of munch, that's a really great option because it's clean protein. They're getting that glycine and collagen. And um, again, it's carb free because carbs will find them. Like even with Stella, she's a fruitarian. We always call her like mini Steve Jobs because he was <laughs> like, I think he only ate fruit exclusively for a oh couple of years. Um, and so, yeah, we try to keep her fruit within like 30 grams of carbs a day. So I'm constantly educating Brady on that, um, because she'll, she, that's her, as soon as she's become able to communicate, you know, the year and a half mark, it was like more grapes, you know, more berries, please more, you know, it's constant fruit is what she asks for. So we try to honor that, but be strategic where like, we'll wait to bring in blueberries until she's gotten halfway through her burger patty and her avocado. And then that's kind of like coming in to help to keep her eating it and stimulate the appetite and re-rev things. Um, and that's kind of how we use a strategy. Otherwise she would just eat all of the fruit first. Um, so something to consider. And then within the con concept of fruit, I should definitely mention her apple thing. Um, she has been known to eat and gum and, and use apples. It's a great tactic we use so that we can actually dine out and have a conversation. <laughs> um, before she even watched any shows or anything, she would eat an apple and at Whole Foods when I'm grocery shopping. Um, so she holds the apple in two hands and a whole form and, and gums it and chews it. And now she can take down an apple and like 15 minutes. Um, you know, she does, yes, eat all the skin. Um, and yes, that is technically a naked carb. I don't slow her down to take bites of fat during that moment. Um, but she has fat pretty much immediately after. And that is a way that uh, in the kind of meal time again with dining out, she's able to do that. Brady and I can have a glass of wine and then all of our entrees come and there's where her protein and fats are and she can eat, eat. Uh, so it's been a good technique and that helps also with teething um, and gumming and distraction. Uh, so that's a good tool. Yes, I love that tool. And dining out with you guys, I have to say, I'm like, oh, she's like totally in it. good she on her own. And yeah, like, yeah. You know. <laughs> it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. So that's been really awesome and um, still goes in her fruititarian world. And then other cards we do beyond fruits. Um, I mentioned sweet potatoes. We also do purple potatoes, uh, different forms of yams, butternut squash, carrots. Um, and we try to keep those around a third cup per day portion. So generally speaking, we're aiming at around like 45 grams of carbs on average, upper being about 60 and the rare fluke of 75 is generally where she's hitting. So less than half of that recommendation daily. Right. Got it. And then, yeah. uh, in terms of keto for kids, is this ever something you would recommend if there's not presence of a, like a neurological or seizure disorder or um, where do you stand on that? Yeah, so I think for medical need, absolutely, a further restriction would need to be implemented. This is neurological conditions, of course, seizures, um, any other neurological disease, including cancers and endocrinological diseases like type one diabetes, 
keto would reign supreme. So definitely further restriction would be the goal there. Now, beyond that, I, I, I don't really believe in further restricting when we're providing whole nourishing foods that are within the constructs of a low glycemic kind of paleo approach, because I do like to allow intuition and selection. And, um, you know, my concern is, again, with that doctrine creating disconnect concept that I, I often use as a phrase, when I go on like keto kids um, sites and look at kind of trending things, I'll often see then more processed foods, um, the use of non-caloric sweeteners, kiddos having diet sodas and such. And, you know, that's always where I stand is like, okay, if we go extreme, unless medically necessary, then that's not good. I always am going to be a higher proponent of real foods. So I am a bigger fan of Stella having banana smashed into her almond butter pancakes with three eggs. And she's still getting dominant fats followed by protein with a little bit of carb, but definitely, you know, she's likely not making ketones. I also haven't tested her for ketone output <laughs> and I don't plan to. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary. Um, so I think it's all about just kind of watching her satiety, her growth development and her immune support again as those big priorities and keeping from excessive carb intake and providing ample nourishing proteins and fats. Sure. And then um, the only, in terms of beverages, let's talk about smoothies because I know that's all you did other than water up until yes. um so yes. let's talk about this is always one for adults too that it's like how do you make it balanced and not a total carbohydrate bomb yeah, yeah yeah so i think we started bringing in smoothies like i said i think i know she was after a year i want to say around like 14 months or so we started doing that as like a post nap ritual so we generally use full fat coconut milk but sometimes we'll use homemade almond milk um and we're usually gonna use that exclusive as a base. We might add a little bit of water, depending on if we're gonna add more nut butter or coconut oil, which we often do. Um, so we typically will add like coconut milk or almond milk um, homemade and then uh, more fat to it. It might be a quarter of an avocado that might be kind of turning that she might not eat because it might have a little bit of brown or um, again, nut butter or coconut oil. Then we're gonna add always greens because that's our way to really get greens into Stella and we like her to get high greens. She's finally doing a lot more now in her scrambled eggs, which is amazing. She used to kind of pick those out. Um, but if you mix bacon in her scrambled eggs, <laughs> that's yeah. the trick. She will eat the heck out of some lasonado kale. Um, so we always add greens to her smoothies and we mix them up. So we'll do like rainbow chard or collard greens or kale, um, baby spinach. And then um, we try to keep it within two fruit choices. So we might use a half of a frozen banana and one or two dates. That's what Brady leans towards. And she tends to like Brady smoothies more than mine. Um, and I tend to do like berries and I'm probably keeping it to like one fruit choice just because I'm a little bit more of like a carb control freak. Um, and uh, so I'll do usually like strawberries or blueberries or I might do a little bit of mango and add a little bit of ginger. Um, and then we'll also typically add protein. It depends on the day though. Um, so if she's had a good two ounces in the morning and maybe she did a snack with like turkey pieces and um, avocado and then for dinner, I know she's going to do one of her favorite proteins. I might just keep it fat, greens, and a little bit of fruit. Um, but otherwise I might add about 10 grams, like a scoop of collagen or a half scoop of my grass-fed whey. And I might even do a half scoop of collagen and a quarter scoop of grass-fed whey. And that's usually the way I go about it because I like getting the immunoglobulins in the grass-fed whey. And often I'll just drive with the whey because the glutathione for her. And I will just mention real briefly, that's the next supplement that we started with her at the year mark. So Stella has not been vaccinated yet because she has 
a lot of genetic mutations. She is an MTHFR. Um, if you guys don't know what this is, since we have so much content, I'm just breezing through it so you can listen to our episodes. I think it's 70 and 71, or is it 69 and 70? I'll make sure that we link to it. It's sure. right around there. <laughs> it's the epigenetics one, and then there's one with Ben Lynch. Ben Lynch. And um, so Stella is homozygous, basically the worst case scenario for MTHFR. So she does have issues with methylation, um, and she also has a homozygous SNP on what's called GST1, which is glutathione S transferase, which is the main detox enzyme. So she stands very high risk for influence negative with the adjuvants or the um, carriers of vaccines. Um, so we uh, were absolutely going to wait until two years and we'll determine in the near future if we're going to vaccinate at all. But we started doing glutathione um, because of her GST1 genetic SNP um, as a uh, liposomal glutathione topical um, cream that we rub over her liver um, to support detox processes um, in favor to kind of compensate for that genetic influence. So she also, of course, has a diet free of toxins. <laughs> she eats all produce, um, organic and very clean and all the things, but she still is breathing in toxic air and being exposed to things. So we started doing that at um, a year mark as well, the um, glutathione liposomal, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and she's getting 500 milligrams about twice a week or so transdermally. Awesome. So not daily, but getting no. it in where we yeah. can. And we didn't give her, we decided not to give her methyl B vitamins um, until we started with giving her a multivitamin. Um, and um, there are a lot of creams that give glutathione with methyl Bs. And actually her quote unquote, air quote, functional pediatrician wanted to be giving her a gram of methylfolate a day. And I was like, oh, heck no. Um, and I'm quite confident that if we would, that that would have led to overexcitatory response. Um, so, you know, always with genetic SNPs, it's not just adding, it's about understanding the process and that you could overshoot. So you want to be strategic with your dosing and your application. Yeah, I remember both of us being a little shocked by that. I know, I was like, let me just like, run this by an outside voice. Right. I wouldn't even give that necessarily to an adult without knowing what I'm dealing with, you know? Yeah. So. And when I talked to Dr. Lynch, he was like, oh, no. I was like, <laughs> okay, I thought so. Awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about immune support. I think we're all getting hungry and getting a really good understanding of Stella's diet. Um, but one thing I'm really impressed with is that she has literally not gotten sick, like sick, sick ever. Um, although we probably should talk about the one time she did <laughs> oh, <gosh>. year. <laughs> okay, so embarrassing. Again, one of those like mom separate your brain from <laughs> practitioner. So I always talk to you guys about hypochlorhydria and not over diluting your stomach enzymes, right? And how you should like drink all of your water, but separate it amply um, from your meal time and so forth. Well, um, goodness, I think she was just a year. We were at Odd Duck, I remember. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because it was like around June, right? Yeah, it was right around my – I was with you for the end of my internship. So Yeah, it yeah. yeah. was June. And so I think she was just over a year. We were at Odd Duck, which is one of my favorite farm-to-table restaurants. And little Stella's like, do-do-do, eating her burger, eating her strawberry, eating her avocado, and um, probably munching on maybe some of the things we were having. I don't know. Um, and uh, she was like drinking out of the water glass. It's like a pint water glass. 
and she kept saying more water. And we were like, ha ha ha, look at her. She's not drinking out of her, um, child's water. Like she's being a big girl. And so she was like laughing and thought she was so funny and kept saying more water. And then like, so she drank an entire, I think it was like, maybe not a pint, but it was like an eight ounce glass. And then we got home and, you know, meanwhile, she was still pounding her burger. And then we got home and she was still asking for more water because I think Becky and I were like laughing and I was probably egging her on. Yeah, Um, (laughs) We were drumming on the chairs. I remember (laughs) more water. Um, And then she was like drinking out of my pint glass of water at home. And all of a sudden Brady's putting her down for bed. And, um, he's like, I like at this FaceTime and he's like, Oh my gosh. I guess she was like very like moving around and restless and she just like vomited all over all of her food, like two or three times because she probably had a poor distended belly full of water. All of her enzymes were diluted (laughs) and probably she was having an electrolyte instability moment (laughs) because she was super diluted. So good, good thing that her system regulated. Um, but that's literally the only time she's never even gotten like a food bug or anything. Um, she gets loose stools or got loose stools while she was going through teething. Um, but that was it. And that's obviously a sign of inflammatory chemicals. So yeah, we learned that. And now then we managed her water intake. (laughs) uh, She's never had any issue other than, you know, poor mom egging her on to drink way too much water. Terrible mother. So yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah, so things we do for her immune system, like I said, pretty much exclusive breastfeeding for eight months. I did breastfeed her up until that year point when she was totally over it and she really self weaned, um, and would push my boob away and point to the crib. So that happened and that was okay. Um, we started her on ultraflora baby in the hospital. Um, so I had her on a probiotic supplement on top of breastfeeding, um, started with six drops, Um, and then following, you know, I think it was this six month mark went up to 12 drops and then, um, stayed at 12, especially once she weaned off of breastfeeding and, um, we then had probiotics in the breast milk and then would go up sometimes like if we're flying, we go up to 20 drops here or there. Um, so that was another supplement that I brought in that I think played a huge role in supporting her immune system. Um, and then we also focusing on immune support started using bone broth pretty much immediately with our preparation of, uh, vegetables and cooking our meats. Now she's not one to sip on a, on a cup of bone broth. I'm not going to lie. That'd be super cool if she would. I haven't been able to get her to do that. Um, but she does like gelatin gummies and she will eat the heck out of jello stuff. Um, so if I'm using like the pasture raised gelatin, she does get more gut support with that. And I think that's a great tool for toddlers. We're going to work on re Brady and I just had a talk. I was like, my two goals are more combination foods because she likes all single ingredients pretty much still. Um, and then uh, bone broth. Those are my two things to kind of start working towards. And then coconut oil also though has a lot of immune support. And that was again, her earliest food introduction. And she was getting a tablespoon uh, regularly at about that eight month marker. Um, so I did choose to stay grain free throughout the first two years. I chose to stay dairy free until she cut her molars at 15 months. Um, and the big reason was to reduce mucus and uh, ear infections, as well as studies that show behavioral and mood disturbances from the casein protein. So um, Otis Medea or ear infections have a high trend in medical literature with cow's milk allergy or just cow's milk irritation. And um, some concept is that they're not able to clear the mucus or phlegm from the dairy as well. Um, So I chose to hold off on that completely. And um, we did start, I think it was 15 or 16 months. 
um, that she started the dairy again. It was waiting for her molars to cut and really ensuring that she had a well-established gut microbiome so that we weren't driving distress from the exposure of the caseomorphin protein crossing that blood-brain barrier. Um, so keeping dairy out, keeping probiotics up, I think we're big tools for sure. Yes. And we talk a lot about this in our um, immune support episodes. So I'll link to that as well as a blog that you wrote on supporting the immune system. There's quite a bit in there about kiddos. Yeah. And that covers the uh, garlic mullen drops yes. and the elderberry syrup as well. And this yes. strain, Let's talk about those. Yeah. So, and, and I just want to mention real quick, the strains of the probiotic. Um, so when you're using a probiotic, you always want it to be in CFUs, not in milligrams. I get so frustrated with that. Um, and so per six drops, Stella was getting a billion of a combination of the lactobacillus raminis. Uh, and the raminis is a big one that we look at for vaginal culture um, support. And then, um, so basically babies need, and then bifobacterium um, animalis lactis. And so those are the two strains that she was getting a billion of per six drops. So she was getting some days, three billion colony forming units. And you look at probiotics um, that are recommended to children and they're either in milligrams, which is crap, or they're given in um, millions. So something just really quick to make a note of. And also the carrier oil is important. So she was getting sunflower oil as the carrier there and um, sunflower oil. So that was another kind of food per se that she was introduced to early on because we were giving her that in the hospital. Um, so another thing, that's what we gave our son butter pretty early on as well. Um, so yes, the garlic mullen, I think I'll, because we have so much to cover, just listen to the immune episode. We'll put links. Um, but those we did use as eardrops when we flew or times of ear pressure. Um, she, uh, did have a potential ear infection that was noted, um, when she did have an, uh, examination at a doctor's office and we brought her back two weeks and, um, it was totally clear. So I swear by those things. And, um, I've even used them on Brady, um, when he's had ear aches after flying, and then same thing with the elderberry um, syrup. We make gummies. We use that preemptively for immune support. Um, and then the last supplement I'll mention for her immune support is vitamin D drops. We also gave these from birth. Same thing with vitamin D. Um, we use the Carlson brand. Um, so you do want to check the carrier oil. Um, this was also sunflower oil. So we weren't adding soy oil or something like that. Um, and she was getting from 400 to 1200 IUs. Um, from birth. So one to three drops um, from birth. And now I will some days hold it because we're in Austin and she's like got a pretty solid tan. She's like, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, depending on the amount of sun she gets, I might not give her her vitamin D, but otherwise she's getting generally about 1200 IUs a day. Yep. She's tanner than I am. <laughs> she's, got, she's got it. She's got that olive, olive color. <laughs> she does. Yeah. Um, and then what about, um, iron needs? Because I know that changes um, at some point in development. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, that's why, and that's one of the arguments that, you know, a lot of pediatricians will do cereals because they're iron fortified. Sure. But always remember, again, there's that ferric versus ferrous. There's heme iron and non-heme iron. And so you want the heme iron, which is in the products like beef and salmon and the animal forms. Um, and yes, research does support that breast milk does start to decline in iron and zinc at six months. So that is consideration. You don't have to freak out. It usually takes about four months to six months to actually have influence in the body, which is why by a year, you know, you, you could start baby lid weaning around six to seven months. By about eight to nine months, you'd want them eating those proteins. So, um, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to freak out. And then you're getting also good support 
for immune system with like A and C and vitamin C, remember helps with iron absorption and utilization in the berries and sweet potato and things like that. Awesome. So were you doing any kind of multi with Stella early on or I know it wasn't, we had a hard time finding something halfway decent. Right. Right. So we actually did private label um, multi-avail kids and we're actually switching up the formulation. So it should be coming out in the outrageous orange soon. Um, And uh, it, we did start this at 16 months for her. So I had done the, like I said, the glutathione cream, I think just over a year um, and uh, at around over a year. And then I um, did start bringing in some methylated bees and a supplemental support with the multi-avail kids. Um, and so that was one of the big priorities was to ensure beyond her getting her leafy greens, which have a good source of folate and beyond the liver that she's sporadically getting, she's not getting liver every day. I'm, I'm you know, not that good or even weekly, you know, she's sporadically getting liver, um, and just a little bit in her, um, mixed meats. I did want to ensure because of her genetics that she was getting some methylation support again, but not a mega dose. So, um, you know, we, it took a while to find a formula that worked well within those parameters and. And um, I was really pleased with the composition of this one. So it does have methyl B12 and it does have methyl folate. Um, and the methyl folate provides 300 micrograms um, in each chewable tablet. And so she is getting one chew as of now. And then in the B12 department, she is getting... Um, what is this? Six micrograms. So she's getting still beyond her at 150 and 200% of her daily needs of these nutrients. They are in their methylated forms, but they're not mega dosing it. Um, and then she's getting a really good blend of bioavailable forms of minerals. Um, any kid's vitamin is going to have some sort of carrier. So this does actually have, and not to freak you guys out, we've gone back and forth and back and forth of good, better, best. And um, I was still pleased with this. It's colored with vegetable um, pigment. So it is orange colored, but it is natural. Um, and it does have a fructose and xylitol and sorbitol. Um, still keeping the total carbohydrate at one, less than a gram of sugar. Um, so it is still considered like a sugar free and the sugar alcohols are also less than a gram. So I think it's pretty negligible at that point. Um, but we wanted to find something that would be palatable in the market of all things that most kids are using hypersensory things and all of that jazz. Sure. Um, and so Probably the sweetest thing still has ever had. Exactly. And it is certified non-GMO and gluten-free. So all the things that I take into account, um, and a good blend of in the A vitamins, getting a blend of the, uh, retinoic and the beta mixed carotenoid blend versus just beta. Um, so really pleased with the composition and the biofilm availability. And, um, we did start her with one chew at 16 months. Um, and she's doing one chew and on a day she eats poorly, I might give her two chews because she is about 35, almost 34 pounds or something like that as of now. Sure. And so something like that could be a really good tool also when we're going through those stages of, I don't want to call it picky eating, but maybe picky eating yeah, or just food jacks. Of and food jacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, and what about, um, just to touch on real briefly, avoidance of fortified foods. We talked about with the iron, yeah. B vitamin fortified foods. Yes. So you got to watch out if you're not doing geeky genetic testing on your kiddos. Um, a lot of foods, most foods, all flour, in, in fact, and that's kind of one of the concepts of maybe this MTHFR thing. Well, we know it's happened since, you know, 
the dawn of time or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's genetics. Um, I mean, they've evolved over time, but it's been, there's been MTHFR SNPs for a long period of time. They've, they've been exacerbated because the introduction of synthetic folate. So when we started fortifying flowers because of the neural tube development issues with folate deficiency, when we started making refined grains, this is when we started seeing issues with MTHFR in the early 90s and into the new millennium. So this idea of synthetic folic acid in someone that has a genetic MTHFR mutation can build up to toxic levels and create significant issues with neurological health, both mood, behavioral, as well as neuropathy, um, as well as degenerative disease. So I really like to avoid all fortified foods. This could even be, again, your organic cheddar bunnies or your fill-in-the-blank um, foods that might be certified organic, check that label. If it notes the nutrients and it notes folic acid, don't eat it. That's a processed food. Awesome. I think that's super helpful. And then as we're on the topic of what not to do, let's just hit a couple things that you don't recommend. Um, there's some freaky foods out there and some, some trends of just really things that are not health supporting. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yes, foods that masquerade as health foods. So yeah. crappy carbs, let's just call them what they are, crappy carbs. Um, so seriously, I mean, like we mentioned, the rice teethers, um, Teddy Grahams, goldfish, just, just fillers that are made with synthetic re-enrichment of low quality nutrients that are either not just not bioavailable, not able to be used optimally, but also can cause imbalance in the body. Not a good thing. And then often are carried with refined sugars like high fructose corn syrup, or now we're able to call, I don't know if you heard, we're able to call high fructose corn syrup sugar again, based on some labeling um, and, and re-solidifying of some of those sugar structures. Now we're able to just call it sugar. So you can't you know, really use that as a guide anymore. Um, so be mindful of additives and synthetics and fillers. And um, some of the ones I'll call out specifically um, veggie straws. So like, right, you see it and you're like, contains a serving of vegetables or whatever. Well, they use industrialized rancid oils um, and these interfere with the bilipid membrane. So actually the cell walls of your child's functional development, um, how their cells communicate are based on those bilipid membranes and the signaling. Um, so when they're getting processed canola oil and rancid soybean oil and or God forbid, hopefully not trans fats, even partially hydrogenated oils, this is really not a good thing. Um, so be mindful of the oils used in their foods. And again, sticking to whole foods. Veggie straws will have industrialized oils. They're comprised predominantly of potato starch and corn. That's what the straw is made of. And then they have like spinach powder, yeah. <laughs> or carrot powder. You know? <laughs> and it's like, that is not a vegetable. Nope. Um, so making your child kale chips as an alternative with two to three ingredients, still going to get a salty, crunchy option would definitely be the food as medicine substitution. Another one is uh, like Gogurt that I see kiddos, you know, whether it's that brand or whatever, um, oh you know, all the different yo baby and all of those things. Um, so A, I think that the dairy is being introduced too early. We really want to wait till molars are cut. So that might be somewhere between 14 to 17 months based on your child. Um, but generally speaking, the dairy is not the recumbent growth hormone hormone free. So 
hormone free when you do introduce dairy. And then like the Gogurt, they just do such a marketing. They, they had um, Sour Patch Kid. I went on their website to read some of their ingredients. Now they have Sour Patch Kids. They have SpongeBob, Disney Frozen, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> Marvel Avengers. <laughs> so, you know, your child's going to see their favorite character and want that flavor. And then they're also going to get a side of potassium sorbate as a preservative, carrageenan, which is a known gut irritant, cornstarch, um, and refined sugars to boot, and very limited protein and fat-free, of course. Um, so no bueno. And then many of these, now this, I did see the only redeeming po possibility of the um, Sour Patch Kids was they used spirulina for their bright blue color. <laughs> That's so interesting. I know. It's like, because they know they're learning, the food marketers are learning that parents are looking for certain things. Like they've heard me say, maybe not just me, but you know, people say no red 40, no blue number two. So they're starting to make little tweaks, but these are still processed foods. Don't be. The, the rest of the ingredients are. Crap. Crappy carbs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, awesome. So let's wrap up with some recipes and talk a little more about getting veggies in. And I know we hit a couple in your recommendations. I know you're a big proponent of getting in green. So what are Stella's favorite ways to eat her veggies? So she's been doing, like I said, really good with scrambles. Um, so egg cups, frittatas, and scrambles are the best way. We've been able to do it, especially if we can incorporate a breakfast meat into that because um, she is a protein girl um, or cheese now. Um, so that's a really great way to kind of hide and, and hold in. Not hide, that's not the right word because you can absolutely see ribbons of lacinato kale. And we don't do, we don't believe in hiding things and tricking her. We are wanting her to be a part of the eating experience. But the smaller we chop them, the more difficult it is for her to pull out is the truth. So when we do a really nice fine chiffonade, that's a great way to get greens into foods. Um, we also have done a couple times the uh, from the Naturally Nourished Cookbook, the green eggs and ham, where we do blend um, spinach and um, a little bit of basil into the scrambled eggs. Obviously, that's not hiding either because it's bright green, and she thinks that's really fun. Fun, yeah. So yeah, we'll do that as well, especially if she's starting to get picky. It's like, ha, 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 you know, pull this up. Um, and so she's been doing good with that. And um, smoothies, like I said, are the, the number one way that we get greens in for sure. She does like kale chips. Um, I have a video on my Instagram that you could scroll back, I think, from about nine months of her making kale chips with me. Uh, Let's see, her first birthday cake we've made a couple times, and that was really high coconut milk, coconut oil, and used a little bit of coconut flour and mashed banana. Um, and we've made that a couple times as um, like muffins and such beyond. The, the frosting was beets and coconut butter, I believe. Um, and so that's been a fun one that we use as like a nourishing treat. She loves almond butter pancakes, um, and that's a really great way that I can also ensure nutritional density and add some things in there. Um, but right now, like I said, she is a single food eater, so we're working on combinations as of now. Like She will not go for like a meatball with too much in it. She doesn't do anything tomato yet, so I don't know what the deal is mm -hmm. with that. And, and I'm not pushing it. Like She won't do cherry tomato. She won't do tomato sauce, anything that's touched tomato. Even if it's a cauliflower pizza slice, she's like, oh, not having it. Um, but she'll eat cauliflower on its own, but nothing with tomatoes. So maybe she's being intuitive and we'll just let her kind of figure that out. Sure. Awesome. I just feel like if we could get that in, there's so many foods. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like those little um, 
liver and bacon meatloaves. Yeah, our delicious bolognese we make every week yep. that she yep. missed out on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. Well. Oh, well, yep. <laughs> Gotta pick your battles. Yeah. Um, so um, rather than just doing a, a 24-hour recall on Stella, I want to talk through her birthday menu um, and just hear a little bit more about what she ate all day and what you guys did just because I wasn't there to experience it. I on Instagram um, yeah. and we'll be cel- celebrating this coming weekend, I'm sure. Oh, we, we still have a lot of trolls decor, so we can do that. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think this will help to give you guys a kind of closing an idea or wrap your mind around like what a two-year-old in my book should be eating or what Stella's eating in an example day. So yeah, on her birthday, we went to snooze. We, we generally um, will eat out about twice a week. So we did, we went out to breakfast. And then we went to the aquarium. So at Snooze, we, we actually woke up and we kind of rushed her right off to Snooze. We didn't do a, a snack right away. So she just had water. Um, and then at Snooze, um, she was getting hungry. So we started trickling in berries. She had a half cup of berries. And um, she had one and a half eggs scrambled. And I asked them to cook it in butter. Um, and then she had two slices of bacon, maybe even two and a half because um, it was her birthday and she kept saying more bacon and it was so cute. Um, they gave her a gluten-free pancake with a candle in it. Um, and she didn't cry <laughs> when we sang happy birthday to her and she did blow out the candle, but the one bite that um, I put on a fork, she did put it in her mouth and she took her hand and pulled it out of her mouth and put it on the plate. So I don't know. I mean, I was open to it. It was gluten-free. Um, but she did not want any of that, which kind of surprised me. Um, so she just had her two slices, two and a half, maybe slices of bacon, one and a half eggs and half cup of berries. Then we went to the aquarium and, um, she may have had a Justin's, uh, or sometimes we use Justin's because Brady got them in bulk, but I'm not a big fan of them because of the palm oil. Palm oil yeah. And they usually, the one we have has maple versus added sugar but she may have had a Justin's nut butter pack. Otherwise, if it was on my guard, it would have been a fat bomb, um, the F bomb brand of a nut butter. Um, but I don't think she did. Um, when she got home, she had turkey, um, about two slices of uh, turkey, a uh, little bit of avocado slices, and about an eighth cup of grapes that were halved. Um, and she would either do grapes or maybe like four or five of those Simple Mills crackers. So she's going to have like a, a salty, crunchy carb or a fruit with a fat and a protein. Um, and that was like her lunch slash pre-nap snack. And then we went down for a nap. Um, otherwise, she'd maybe have broken up her breakfast snack and then do a smoothie after nap. Um, but when we woke her up, we were dressed up as trolls. <laughs> did the oh whole my thing. gosh. And so we had, um, I made chicken tenders, um, which I'm going to be putting on the blog, my chicken tender recipe. Um, it was all, uh, dredged in egg and dipped in almond flour with a bunch of seasonings. And then we did zucchini fritters, which were phenomenal. Um, so I used egg to bind those. I used uh, parm and aged cheddar and um, scallions and uh, shredded zucchini, three shredded zucchinis. So it was a good uh, vegetable side for her. And they were pan fried in avocado oil and ghee um, as a blend. And then we did fruit kebabs as an activity before we ate. So we took these um, sticks and we would string. I had cut some uh, watermelon into stars 
we had uh, pineapple pieces, kiwi slices, and blueberries, I believe, and then the um, stars of the watermelon. And so we made fruit kebabs, and she got to eat one kebab with a zucchini fritter and some chicken tenders as her dinner. And then we actually did her cake first because I wanted photos without her shirt being messed up. <laughs> um, so we did. I made a flourless chocolate cake um, from Christina from Castaway Kitchen. I did a modification, so I will be blogging that as well. Um, it's coming out from her new cookbook, Made Whole. Um, but I did some uh, pretty significant adaptations. I reduced the coconut flour, added some almond flour, omitted the erythritol and the stevia, swapped out um, something else, added ghee. Um, so did a, a good amount of shifts, but it was inspired by her um, chocolate muffins. And I made that into an eight-inch cake pan and then did like a chocolate ganache with just coconut cream and an 80% Theo's chocolate bar um, that I double boiled and poured on top and put some raspberries on top. And it was phenomenal. Um, we all loved the cake. Okay. So Stella was into the cake this year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. she, she said a big, big, big chocolate bite. Um, oh but with that she, said, she didn't eat more than half of her piece. Like she's like a pretty sugar regulator. It's interesting. And I'm always like, okay. Um, but she loved, she crushed that zucchini fritter. So pretty funny. <laughs> Sounds so, so delicious. And we'll make sure that we get all those recipes yes. on the blog. Um, so I think we've covered a lot of ground today. We've given <laughs> listeners some guidance and some goals and some inspiration. Um, if you love what we're putting out, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. And on Amazon, you can find our Naturally Nourished Cookbook as well as pre-order Allie's upcoming book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet. Yes. And when you purchase and or review the Naturally Nourished Cookbook, make sure it's the one with my name as the author. There is another one out there. And then when you leave reviews, it's really important. Even if you write five words beyond the five stars on iTunes, the words help to boost the al algorithm. So we really appreciate that. Um, and yes, I hope that uh, you guys all keep perspective that feeding your ch children or your grandbabies, depending on the grandmas that are listening and trying to disseminate this to their in-laws or children. Um, it's a journey and we're all in different starting points and we're all unique. So this should aid us something to inspire, not to shame. And, you know, simply a way to focus on optimal nourishment, what things you can add, what things you can strategically reduce to help to set up your child for optimal success and growth and development and um, balanced mood and behavior. So thank you for tuning in and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.